All right, well, we uh, come back this evening to uh, our Word and to the book of Ruth. We're going to continue on in this wonderful study uh, of Ruth. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting and the opportunities abound, uh, e- even as a pastor. You know, there are, are times where, where we, we attempt to be so careful uh, as those who stand before the sacred desk in what we say. And at times, uh, uh, things come out that we really didn't intend, and so there's opportunity for uh, a, a little humbling and a little closer connectivity with the congregation. It's been three weeks, so I guess this is my opportunity, as we met last Wednesday night, and I made the, uh, uh, the comment, Roll Tide. Um, I, I meant no offense. Um, I, I haven't become a, a dyed-in-the-wool um, Alabama fan. Um, I'm sure had Auburn won, I'd, I'd had some kind of, you know, war eagle screech or something ready to go for y'all. Because um, I, I go, I'm, I'm fine either way there. I hope not to be a, a legalistic mercenary fan wherever I go. Because I know none of you would be. So um, if, if there was an offense, forgive me, I love y'all and... You know, Alabama or Auburn or Idaho or wherever it might be. It's all good. We, we love one another here. So anyway, it's a blessing for us to come together and for me to have the opportunity to humble myself. And I'm growing each day, so thanks for your patience. And uh, we come to this book tonight. And, and this is just, we're really getting to some of the most exciting part of this book. Um, a lot of books of Scripture... They're, they're very much like a roller coaster. You know, you kind of get a peak, be slow up for a little bit, and then you get a big kind of burst, and then there's climb back up the hill, and, and so it goes. Um, Ruth is a little different than that. It kind of starts off, and we get a little bit of a start, and, and it comes up very, very quickly. You kind of get to that first peak, and you just start dropping, and the thrills go on. And we're going to see quite a bit of that. In fact, it almost is, uh, you know, they had one of these rides in, in California. We lived in a, uh, the town that we lived in had a magic mountain with all those kind of big rides. And they had the Superman ride where you went up, and then it was just a straight drop. I, I was always a little afraid of those rides. I couldn't quite do that. Um, but in any case, this is a little like that. And, and we're moving towards some great stuff this evening. We're in the sixth verse of Ruth chapter 1. And, and we're all familiar as we consider this verse with, with figures in history that have that heroic character. Um, I think of uh, Eric Little in Chariots of Fire. And, and that man who, who ran for the glory of God. You know, there aren't many movies you can mention uh, from the pulpit. Probably none you ought to, because there's pieces in all of them that are a little sideways. But, you know, just to understand that man's commitment and to understand all that he put into what he was. And, and commitment really was what it was for him. It was commitment to his body and to the gift God had given him, but it was more to the God who had given it to him. So there was a physical and a spiritual commitment. We, we think of, and maybe you're familiar with uh, a movie that's come out recently, the uh, Louis Zamperini story, Unbroken. Uh, I guess there was a movie, I've not seen it. The book is far, far better than the movie I've been told uh, about how you know he was a, a prisoner of war and just endured horrific things to survive and to return. Actually, lived in the town that I came from uh, in California, 
and uh, had, had died not long before that movie came out. But commitment is really what marked him. And others through history, and Frank, and the commitment to the moral truth of not allowing the Jews to undergo the persecution of the, the Nazi travesty. Well, tonight we see the beginning of a story that is really every bit as heroic and has a commitment level that is replete throughout the theme of our text. And, and that's why I've picked a title for our message, Faithfulness in Commitment. Faithfulness in Commitment. Let's take a look at our text. I'm going to read uh, an extended section of the text tonight because it's all kind of one block. We're not going to get through all of this tonight. Um, take us at least two, maybe three nights, but we'll just see how the Lord moves. But read along with me in Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to even have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Praise the Lord for his incredible word. 
Well, as we consider this text tonight, faithfulness and commitment is all over it. We're going to see that throughout this section of text, there's actually four facets of commitment that we're going to look at. We'll get to a couple of those tonight, and then we'll come back, Lord willing, next week and pick up the next two. Um, these, these facets of commitment are further confirming for us God's faithfulness. You remember from last week, if you were with us, that that is a key component that is in this text. It sh- our introduction showed us God's faithfulness in the face of man's faithlessness. Remember, we saw a faithless nation in which this text originated that the nation of the judges the the theme of that book of judges was cycles cycles of wickedness repentance and of the lord's restoration and as soon as the nation of israel was restored they immediately went back to their wickedness and the lord punished them and they would repent and the lord would relent And so it went over and over again, these cycles of wickedness. Arguably one of the most wicked times in the nation of Israel. And consider the context of what was going on. All that these people had seen. This is the generation that has come out of the wilderness. They have seen their parents fall in Beersheba and in the area to the south of Israel proper in the desert. They have seen horrific acts. They are familiar with the golden calf and God's judgment. They are familiar with the sons of Korah and the ground opening up to consume those rebellious people alive. They are familiar with God bringing water out of the rock, which we know from 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Jesus Christ. And that living water which we receive is this his word. And on and on, these amazing things. And if that weren't enough, they watched as the priests put their foot into the Jordan River. As they carried the Ark of the Covenant and the water split. Such that the entire nation of Israel could come into the land of Canaan. And under Joshua's conquest, they saw the nations put down before them. With barely a a lifting of their finger in many cases. They have seen so much, and immediately their their faithlessness is evident. Uh, Just unbelievable for us to consider the faithless nation. And then we saw the faithless husband, who the the famine comes into the land, and first thing we're going to do, all right, pack up the wife and kids, and we're out of here. We're going to go find somewhere where there's some food. We talked about how that didn't work out very well for Abraham and it certainly didn't work out well for Elimelech because before long he endured the judgment of God and God took his life from him. His two sons, Malon and Chilion, also faithless men who go out and choose Moabite women for themselves contrary to the decree of God and remain in the land rather than returning to the land of Israel. And therein they too lose their lives. And amidst all of this, we have a faithful God who will not forget Naomi. And that's exactly what we see is God's faithfulness and Naomi's faithful response in verse 6. Where it said, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. Pay attention to that word return in our text 
depending on your version, you're going to see it probably at least six times in this text. When we see one verb, when we see one word two or three times in a text, it's like, okay, we got to pay attention to that. Now, if you are teaching the Bible at all, here is Bible 101 for you. You go through and you read the Bible text and you read it and you read it and you read it and you start looking for those repeat words. When you see that word repeated two, three times, you better pay attention to what's going on there. The Lord's telling us something. When we see it repeated six times, it becomes a major theme for us. You're going to see that as we move along through our text today. So although the men were faithless, God remained faithful as he always is. And as we looked at at the conclusion of our message last week, when we went to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, and we saw how even though man may be faithless, God is always faithful. And and really this is the uh, undergirding rather point of all of that introductory text, is wherever we are in our life, God is faithful, and God is calling us back to himself. As long as we are drawing breath, there's opportunity for us to come back to the Lord, to grow, to learn from the errors we we make, and to move forward, and, and to do better next time. So God's faithfulness continues through commitment in our text this evening. Let's go to our first point, which... Not too surprising, I am an engineer, don't want to get too creative. Commitment in return. Commitment in return is our first point, beginning there in verse 6. And the first thing we want to understand as we come to this verse, we want to come with those who are really looking into the text. I want you to consider Naomi's condition of her heart. How, How would it be to be a wife who had lost her husband. Many of you know that pain and that difficulty. It is extremely challenging. How about a wife who has been bereft of a son? Also difficult. But now a husband and both sons. This is a woman who is grieving in a way that is difficult for us to understand. She, she is burdened beyond measure because of the loss which she has experienced. We all know loss, and she has seen it in a way that I would dare speculate that few of any of us have. The text begins by telling us that Naomi arose. Now that doesn't mean that she literally got up from a seated position and went on. It's talking about this condition of her heart. In the Jewish world, when a a relative died, there was a prescribed period of mourning. And through that time, one was not to be uh, going about. There was actually to be people coming to your home. It's an interesting consideration. There are many things in the the Jewish world that we can learn things from. In in our world today, in the fast-paced hustle and bustle of modern-day America... When, when someone passes away, we, you know, we're scattered across this wonderful United States, and so our families jump on airplanes, and we come together, and we have that, you know, family reunion around a memorial service or a funeral service, and after a few days, everyone goes, and it leaves those of the immediate family alone. Now, when there's a church, then we know as a church family, we're to come alongside too, and we're to help, but... In the Jewish tradition, there was actually a prescribed period of about three weeks where people were supposed to be coming from the Jewish 
body into the home, bringing food, and continually being around those people. I think that's a brilliant idea. We don't get over the loss of a loved one in a few days, a week, even for that matter, three weeks. But it's that constant nurturing. And, and so that's, this is what she's arising from. Now, they're in Moab, but nonetheless, she is one who is carrying forth that tradition of the morning. And she is arising from that morning. And that's what we're seeing happening here. It's a reminder for us of, of Luke 9, 51. Luke 9 and 51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. As she was arising, there is a... Uh, a, a conviction in her heart as to what she is going to do. She is arising so that she can go back to Israel. The Lord, as he was going to Jerusalem, he set his face as flint. The disciples are talked about how they simply stood back and allowed him to go because he was walking on ahead of them. He was going. If you're coming, fine. If you're not, that's fine. Ruth has got a conviction at this point, she has set her face. And her two daughter-in-laws are with her. They're in the land of Moab and they are moving back towards Israel. And this whole discussion is going on through that time. And notice the reason there that she is returning in verse 6. For the Lord has visited his people in giving them food. This verb visit is not like the connotation that we would have. When I visit, I'll come over to your home and we'll talk and maybe we'll have a cup of coffee or a glass of water and a snack and, and, and that's the visit and that's what comes to our mind. But that's not what the connotation of this Hebrew verb is. Rather, it is much more powerful. He is talking here in visiting about this idea of, of missing someone and seeking them out. It can have both a positive or, or negative connotation. Some of the other translations for this word would be to hunt for. Now that would be the negative side. Or to, to seek out, or to care for. Let me give you a couple scripture references that well describe this same Hebrew verb. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 31. In Exodus 4.31 we read, So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned, that's our verb visited, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low in worship. There is this seeking out by God of them. Here's another one in Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 7. Zephaniah 2 and 7. And the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortunes. Will care for them. He is, he is looking out. He's not just visiting and passing by, but he has a, a desire to come to them. He has a desire to know what's going on in their heart. And God had a desire to go to the children of Israel. He always did, beloved. He still does. He will restore them. And he was coming again. The drought had come. The famine had come. And God is returning to his people. And he is bringing back the life-giving reigns. Isn't it amazing to consider, or do you, the blessing of rain? 
mean, you, you have such a, a, a sweet place that is so gloriously green. It, it's amazing to be here. You know, I wake up and I don't have sinus headaches, you know, and I'm getting bloody noses all the time, and I know a little, maybe TMI. Um, but it, it is so wonderful. You know, rain in California is unheard of. And of course, they just, they've had a few rainstorms and they're overwhelmed that in, you know, don't we always not expect enough from God? You know, they're thinking, oh, it doesn't matter how big El Nino is, it's never going to touch this drought. I read today on the internet that one lake came up 10 feet since the storms have started about a month ago. 10 feet in a lake. That's a boatload of water. And, uh, you know, they just, this is, this is God's care for his earth. This is God's care for his watch people. Are, are we his people? Absolutely not. Is this this land that we can come and that we can cry out and he will hear our voice, our voice and heal our land? No, that is specifically, that text from Second Chronicles is about the nation of Israel. But he does love his people. And he is about seeking our good and showing himself as a merciful and gracious God. And this is what the visitation is about. God showing himself mighty and coming back. And the news breaks Naomi's dark and gloomy disposition. It shows God's faithfulness to Naomi in at least four ways, as uh, Dan Block notes in the New American Commentary. Dr. Block says, the first gift is the gift of good news. Boy, don't take that too lightly. We just talked about Naomi's position in her heart. Some good news. The Lord has brought back and visited his nation. Second, it shows that Yahweh has intervened. He has visited on behalf of his people. There is not only the fact that we see Yahweh's hand again, that God has not walked away from his people, which he will never walk away from his people. He will never walk away from you. He will never leave me. He will never forsake us. So she's got the good news of his presence, the good news of his intervention. And third, that the object of God's grace in his visiting is his people. He could have said, I've had enough of them. How many times did he want to say that in the wilderness generation to Moses? I am done with this people. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start again with you. And Moses pled, no. Father, for your glory, for your promise, for your honor. Amazing to understand. This word for his people here expresses the covenant relationship that God has with them. The fourth piece of showing God's faithfulness here is Yahweh has given his people bread. Now, this is, this is the most incredible little phrase in the Hebrew. And he, he, what he's really saying here is that he is, the house of bread is being restocked. And you might say, okay, great. Well, the house of bread is Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. It is a two-part word. The first part, bait, means house, very common in Hebrew, and lehem means bread, house of bread. And the literal translation, so we could say bait lehem, the literal translation of this text is lehe, lehem, lehem, to give to them bread. 
There's a picture here that's being painted for us about the importance of Bethlehem. Do you remember what we talked about last week? How this is such a key component? Because Bethlehem is that lineage in the Lord's line that he will go back to. So he's continuing to draw our attention to us. The Lord is focusing on Bethlehem. The Lord has a plan and he keeps showing us and he gives us little pictures. You know, sometimes when you try to show uh, a young child a complex picture, they don't get it all. And so what did we use when we were little in Sunday school? We used flanographs, didn't we? And we put up a piece of the picture and then we put up another piece of the picture and then another piece of the picture and pretty soon the kids saw the picture. The Lord's taking us by the hand. He's saying, kids, See my picture? Bethlehem. It's going to be a big deal. Keep your eye on it. There's this suddenness in all of this verbiage as well in verse 6. Everything is moving instantly. Naomi arises and she's ready to go. It's not like she's packing up a, you know, 3,000 square foot house in California, which I would know nothing about. Unfortunately, my poor wife does. But Naomi doesn't have a lot of stuff. Well, this suddenness continues into verse 7. And in verse 7, there are these two key words that we talked about. Remember when we began? Return. Return. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Twice in two verses, we're seeing this word. Midway in verse 6 and the end of verse 7. The previous rebellion which caused the death of the men in her family, she is now going to stop. This is the end. This is the end of the faithlessness in my home. Beloved, don't let that go by lightly. Wherever you are in your home, wherever your children are, no matter their age, whether your grandchildren are, we have a responsibility We have a responsibility to go forth and say, this is the end of the faithlessness. You must realize where you are going. Have we not learned an amazing lesson from Ethel Sharp? Oh, as that dear woman was sharing about having to tell her son, Michael, you're alive, but you could be dead. And if you were dead, you would be in hell. That is a message no mother ought to have to tell her son. Help us to be faithful, to carry that message forth. And as Naomi said, this is the end. This is where righteousness must happen. This is my all for this. Whatever it takes, I'm leaving to go back. That's where we have to be. The previous rebellion which caused that death is now being restored. And this is her commitment to return. Her two daughter-in-laws are with her. You know, we were reminded of the prodigal son, aren't we? As he was out and he was wandering around and depleted all of his resources and he's feeding the pigs and he remembers his father. And he says, you know, if I can, if I can go back and but be a slave for my father. <laughs> can we be but slaves for our father? Can we so submit ourselves and return completely to him That's where our lives must each be because we all have elements in our lives. I I do, you do, where we're faithless. 
There's areas of faithlessness in our prayer. There's areas of faithlessness in our scripture reading. There's areas of faithfulness in our, uh, our relationship with our husband or our wife or our children or our church commitment. We all have room to grow. Amen? So let's do it. Well, that, com- that commitment to return leads to our second point in verse 8, the commitment to stay. The commitment to stay. The commitment to stay begins here in verse 8. Look at it with me, won't you? And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. We'll see that there are, there are two aspects to this commitment to stay and they're and they're and they kind of volley back and forth this looks a little bit like a, a Wimbledon tennis match and it's back and forth in the focus of where the commitment to stay is on one hand there is the commitment to stay in Moab and on the other there is the commitment to stay in Israel The first aspect here is a commitment to stay in Moab. Naomi is committed to seeing these young women remain at home. And this is a great personal sacrifice due to the dangers of this trip. Consider for, with me for a minute, the geography of Israel and what she's going to do. Naomi is in Moab. She is in a region about 250 miles away from Bethlehem. It's an area that you can't get straight to because you have to cross the great desert. So you have to go around to get there. We're obviously not taking any trains, planes, or automobiles. We're walking 250 miles around the edge of the great desert. If you were to attempt that trip on your own, you would barely make it a night or two's journey, and you would certainly be killed by the desert marauders, and anything you possessed would be taken after they had taken severe advantage of you, most particularly a woman. So now she has to find a caravan that's coming by in order to consider joining them. And keep in mind, she is an older, single widow in a group of Bedouin caravanners. It is not a good situation. It is not the kind of environment anyone wants their mother to be in. And yet that is what she is prepared to do. This is a trip that has great personal dangers for her. But yet she is very firm in her address to these two. Notice how it begins. There are two commands that she gives to them in verse 8. She says, go and return. There's our word, third time. Two commands, go and return. Either one would be a very forceful construction. But it's telling us here that she is convinced that this must happen. This is Naomi expressing tough love. And also at the same time, the greatest kindness behind it in the location that she could send them. We could could overlook this little phrase, the mother's house, but don't. It has so much meaning. It is very unusual in Scripture. It occurs three times in all of the Bible. Mother's house. Usually we would see father's house because it is the men who are the ones who typically are the ones seen with the possession and that possession right passes to the oldest son and so on and so forth. Why mother's house? 
Some try to put a feminist slant on the text at this point, based on this. But as we'll see, this is contextual fraud. That is not at all what the text is talking about. The context is clearly clearly denying such eisegetical assumptions. You all know what eisegesis is, right? Exegesis is what we're doing here. We're opening the word, we're talking about the word. Eisegesis is what happens in many of the churches in this country. They open the word and then they read it and they come completely out of left field with what it says. This is the health and wealth gospel movement. This is the Catholic Church. This is many, many other areas who do not understand the truth of God's word and their traditions have informed the truth of the word of God, not the word of God informing their traditions as we seek to do. So here is this horrific eisegesis. And what is really happening is that this writer is brilliantly executing his writing in doing so to portray a woman's perspective from his point of view. It's a wonderful and a brilliant piece of literature. The other places that we see this happen in Scripture are in Song of Solomon in chapter 3 and verse 4. If you want to look at it after we're done, Song of Solomon 3 and 4, and also the Song of Songs in 8, 2, chapter 8 and verse 2. And also for the third out of four places in Genesis 24, 28. And in every one of those contexts, the mother's home is referring to protection and referring to marriage. Marriage and love are the context. And there is tremendous care in these words here. And the aspect of marriage will pick up in just a moment. Naomi's kindness is further displayed in her stated double blessing to the ladies. The first blessing is that Yahweh would show kindness to them in verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly, that is the major theme of the book of Ruth. Because it is the word hesed steadfast love, loyal love. Remember how we've talked about this is one of the greatest love stories in the book, but the word love is not in here? That's because instead, we're talking about a love that is beyond the conception of human love. This is Hesed love. This is God's covenant-keeping love. This is the inviolable love that God has for his children. As may God deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me the purpose here is because of her kindness the kindness that god would show to these girls because of what they have shown to her and her departed sons it's incredible to see all that is behind this text she's she's praying for the lord's steadfast love upon them i just described what this is this is god's covenant love When we think of the full fruition of the covenants, we ought be thinking of the new covenant, right? Where the Lord comes in Jeremiah 31, 31, and in Ezekiel 36, 22, and he says, I will take your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will give you my spirit that it will dwell with you. I will give you a new heart. It is rebirth. She is praying for salvation for these women. But wait a minute, who are these women? They are Moabites. What? The Jewish people would have been doing double backflips here. The Pharisees would have been barring the doors to the temple. 
The Sadducees would have been rolling up the money tables because we can't have no discussion about the Lord having anything to do with those Gentiles, much less the Moabites. Remember the Moabites. The Moabites are the most despicable to the nation of Israel. They are the ones who are the illegitimate offspring of Lot and his daughters. They are the ones who are continually antagonistic to the nation of Israel. But that's exactly what's happening. This love which she is preying upon them, it is the redeeming love, it is the salvific love. And this is a prayer that has the element of salvation behind it. It's a prayer akin to your prayer for your unsaved loved ones. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful that the Lord has brought me here, and I, I wanted to express that Sunday night, but I, I, I can't tell you how much the Lord has stirred my heart as, as talking to many of you about my story and my background has often brought to light my brother, who is... Very, very, very much unsaved. And, and it's brought me again to a place where I'm reminded of how much I need to be pleading to the Lord for his salvation. No matter how antagonistic he is. Because God can work through any heart of stone. He worked through this one. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that opportunity. And, and this is the prayer that I have for my brother. And this is, I know, the prayer that you have for the unsaved loved ones in your home, out of your home, parents, whoever it might be, aunts, uncles, cousins. You pray that Jesus would save them, would save them from hell and the eternity of punishment that is coming for all of the damned who will not accept Christ. Beloved, this is the only prayer that we better be praying. This better be the most important prayer on our lips each and every day. Because we all have these unsaved loved ones in and around our families. And it is the prayer that Naomi is asking for as well for these girls. But notice that she is praying Yahweh's blessings upon these pagan women. It shows her confidence in Yahweh's impact upon the land of Israel and beyond. It's not just that he is the God of Israel only. He is the God of all gods. He is the God of all creation. He is the God of all the pagan nations. And Naomi has no doubt about that. And so she is praying for these women. It shows that Yahweh may also be concerned with these non-Israelites. And this is such a huge precursor. Because who is going to become the mother in the lineage of our Lord? How did that sit with the Jewish people? Oh yeah, Ruth, the Moabitess, sit tight. Amazing to understand this precursor. And it shows that Naomi recognized Orpah and Ruth's actions as similarly representing the love that is consistent with that of Yahweh. Look at the text. It says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and the dead. That same love they are somehow expressing. Incredible to just ponder that for a moment. Incredible to be encouraged for a moment. To know that Yahweh is seeking to reach every heart. That God is long-suffering, wishing that none should perish. What a praise. The second part of Naomi's blessing is in verse 9. It says, may the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. 
Again, she invokes the covenant-keeping name of the Lord, Yahweh. And she also prays not just that Yahweh would give to them, but that they would find rest. Think about that as well. God offers rest to all, doesn't he? Mike, wasn't God offering rest to each of those 18 boys last night? If they would but receive? But how many find that rest? An incredible blessing that she is offering to them that they would find that rest. And again, the undergirding idea in that Hebrew word of of rest is peace. And it is a peace that is a peace that is consistent with salvation. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but the peace that we have is the peace from Christ. It is the peace that is eternal. True peace only occurs in salvation. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's further confirmation of her salvific intent in this prayer for these two pagan women. And notice also that she prays that the rest be found in the house of her husband. There goes the feminist perspective. Out the window. The reason that she brings up the house of her husband is because she anticipates that they will return. There is an initial desire for them to go to the house of their mother. That is the place of protection. That is the place where Ruth, if she were to have daughters or daughter-in-laws, would receive them back. And now she prays that they will find this peace in the house of their husbands. She is praying that they would be married again. And it confirms the earlier indication about the context of marriage in reference to the mother's house. Also removes, again, any idea of a feministic theology. This brings a loud and moving show of emotion here at the end of verse 8, where or verse 9, where it says, Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. The text could have just as easily said, and they cried. We all know what it's like to cry when we leave a loved one. I, I remember I was, you know, I was a mama's boy with my grandma on the ranch, and every time I left, and, and we drove out the driveway, and we made the turn down the county road, and grandma's standing out on the porch waving, and we're honking at the, the prescribed intervals down the road, and I'm bawling in the back seat, you know. But it's not that kind of crying. The word for wept here, the word itself, is more like wailed or wept bitterly. This would convey strong emotion, but it's more than that. It says they lifted their voices and wept. This is bellowing at the top of their lungs. This is an uncontrollable sorrow. This is the emotion that we would all be familiar with at the passing of a loved one that was very close to us. Most of us know that gut wrenching emotion where we just our inner being hurts we just are cramping in our bowels that's what i felt when my brother was killed in that skiing accident i was sitting there in class in college and one of my roommates said you need to go call your dad (laughs) my dad says you're not going to believe this but monty's been killed what? And it doesn't go away. 
the pain and the angst, they're great. My heart was broken, and I could find no peace. But I could find no peace because I had no God. Verse 10 continues, and now our commitment to stay changes focus. Previously, previously, it was the commitment to stay in Moab, and now we have our first volley in the tennis game. And now it is the commitment to stay in Israel. Let's take a quick look at it in verse 10. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. It's an extremely powerful statement. It's our key word, return again, now for the fourth time. And all of this has happened to Naomi's family. In relatively short time, the women have known her versus those of her own country, but they want to return with her. Extremely strong statement. They knew nothing about Israel, never had traveled there. These people were their enemies. If we look back in the book of Judges, 14 times Moab is referenced. Always they are enemies. Why would these women want to go? There's no reason at all. The journey is crazy dangerous, but they're undaunted. And the tennis game isn't over, and Naomi returns serve. She has shown herself to be a strong contender back in verses 8 and 9, and she does so again in verses 11 to 13. And she carries forward in this incredible return in one of the most powerful sections in our text. 